The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Ever been desperate before? I mean, really, really desperate. I, I'm not talking about uh, desperate like I need a date tomorrow night or desperate like I need a bathroom stop because my husband won't let stop when we're traveling in the car or desperate like I need a bluebell fix desperate tonight. So uh, you've been really des- life and death desperate. Life and death desperate. This morning, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at a dad who's desperate for his son's life. We're going to look at uh, and read and study and learn from this desperate dad and the situation he finds himself in. Let me remind you that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night seeking some answers. And there's a Samaritan woman that came to a well by day and Jesus gave her some answers. And now we have a dad who comes out of desperation to Jesus wanting a miracle. All three of them were confronted by Jesus or came to Jesus and they left receiving way more than they ever imagined. They received way more than they ever imagined. And so we're going to look at this passage beginning in John chapter 4, verse 46, and it begins with the request of a dad. John 4, 46, he came therefore, that Jesus came again to Cain of Galilee, where he had made water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The term royal official you find there, interesting in the Greek language, it's literally the king's man. He was one of the king's men. He was one of Herod's guys. He had the responsibility to oversee what was going on in Capernaum and to represent Herod as he was there. Capernaum was a sleepy little fishing village on the shore of northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, if you look up here on the left, it gives you an artist's rendering of what it must have been like. And also, this is what it looks like today. If you were to come with us in May, when we go to Israel, this is what you would see. You would see the ruins of Capernaum. So it's a sleepy little fishing village. In the time of Christ, it only had about 1,500 people. So 1,500 people occupying uh, Capernaum on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And let me remind you that from Capernaum was Peter and Andrew, James and John and Matthew. Pretty significant in our story. We may ask the question, how did this royal official know about Jesus? Well, perhaps he grew up with Peter, Andrew, James, and John and Matthew. Perhaps that they were boyhood friends. Perhaps they went to school together. We don't know the whole story, but this is where those disciples were from. If you were to come with us, this is, these are the runes you'd see. Many of you have been there with us. And, and by the way, let me point one thing out. You see the lower stacks of bricks down here on the bottom? Uh, that, those are the outlines of houses. And, and so when Jesus says in John 14, he says, in my father's house are many, what do you read? Are many what? Mansions is what the King James says, okay? It, it literally says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. When we think about mansions, we think about 12,000 square foot houses on a hill, right? Your mansion is going to be more like that. And I'm just saying, okay? I mean, when they heard the word dwelling places, this is what they saw and this is what they thought. And so get that 12,000 square foot house out of your mind for all of eternity. That's not where you're going to be. So that, that's the reality of it. So think about it. This is where he is. He is a desperate dad. His son has a fever and he's dying. He, he is a rag limp doll. And, and this dad, out of desperation, does what any mom or dad would do. When our son was three weeks old, back in May of 1981, he was three weeks old and he spiked a fever. Well, we had a two-year-old daughter at that time and toddlers always spiked fevers and we didn't think much of it, but the fever kept climbing. Finally, it hit 103. We called our pediatrician in the dead of night and he said, you get to the emergency room at Children's Hospital in Dallas right now. 
uh, at three weeks old, we're supposed to have 103 fevers. It's a problem. And we got there, and in the matter of a couple hours, they did a spinal tap, and uh, Daniel was diagnosed with spinal meningitis. Three weeks old. And, and at that time, we were desperate. We would, I'd do anything for my son. I, I would have given anything we had. We didn't have much, but I'd have given it to him. And uh, to, to anything for him to be cured, to be well, I, I would have given myself for him. You know what it's like. This is a desperate dad. Well, this dad has wealth. He has prestige. He has power. He has rank. He has position. He's an honored man. He had a villa on the shores of the sea. He, he, he had everything, all the accoutrements that life could offer. He had everything. But everything he had could not buy what he wanted most desperately. What he wanted more than anything else were his son to live. And so this dad who had everything couldn't get what he needed more than anything else. And the story doesn't tell us what the dad does prior to going to Jesus, but I would imagine it does tell us that there was a fever. And, and so that you, you can see them mopping their son's sweat and you can see them trying to cool him off. And maybe the dad went and sat out by the seashore and he reflected upon his life. And maybe he questioned with tears running down his face, why have I been gone so much? Why all these business shirts? Why haven't been with my son? Or, or maybe he thought about the empty place sitting at the table next week. Or looking out in the backyard and not seeing his son there. Or gone fishing and his son wouldn't be with him. We don't know what he was thinking. But he was a desperate dad. He was a desperate dad who desired the one thing that his money and rank and position and prestige couldn't buy. The health of his son. And so he does what any desperate dad would do. He does something totally uncharacteristic. He goes looking for someone to help him. See, normally he's the one who helps others. Normally he's the one that has people coming to beg from him, but rather he goes begging to Jesus. So the scriptures tell us in these two verses that we look at, verses 46 and 47, that, that he came requesting him to come down. I can see this frantic search in Cana Galilee. By the way, here's a map of where we're located. Capernaum is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can see it up there. Cana is 25 miles inland, so it's only a 25-mile hike. I guarantee you he made it as quickly as he could from Capernaum to Cana to find Jesus. Canaan was an even smaller town than Capernaum was, so probably pretty easy to find. Everybody knew about Jesus because he had turned water into wine there, and perhaps the royal official had heard even that story. We don't know. But I would imagine word traveled fast, wouldn't you? I mean, it was Andrew and Peter and James and John and Matthew's hometown, and they had seen the miracle. They had witnessed it. In fact, in John 2, it says they believed after they saw that miracle, the first sign. And so what we see here is this man coming desperately. And if you look at the text, it says he was requesting him to come down. The word was requesting. How many of you were English majors out there? How many of you don't know anything about English out there? Yeah, this is a present perfect participle. How's that for some English right there? Okay, I had to look it up to see what that meant. Present perfect participle means this is continuous action. This man didn't go up to Jesus one time and say, hey, Jesus, would you come with me? This man went to Jesus and was asking over and over for his son, Jesus, would you come with me? Jesus, please come. Jesus, you got to come. Jesus, would you do this? And so this present perfect participle talks about continuous action. And that's what this man is doing. He's begging for his son's life. He's asking Jesus to come for him. And, and so he, he said that his son was sick at Capernaum and he heard all this. He goes looking for Jesus. He finds Jesus. And if you look at the next verse, it seems out of character and out of context, doesn't it? Because we move from the request of the dad to the rebuke of Jesus. So this desperate dad comes looking for Jesus to heal his son who's sick with a fever at the point of death. And Jesus says, I'm coming with you. I, I want to heal your son. 
What does Jesus say? Look at verse 48. Jesus therefore said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, if you write in your Bible, circle the word belief. It's a key word in John's gospel. We've seen it over and over and over. He, he, Jesus looks at this man and he says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And you're thinking, Jesus, what are you doing here? I mean, the man just came to you out of desperation, begging for his son's life and you rebuke him. Well, let me let you in on one thing. First of all, the word you there is plural. So if they would have been from the South, they would have said, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. It's a better translation of that verse, okay? So what Jesus is doing, he's not just rebuking this man, he's rebuking his people, the nation of Israel. Unless you, plural, see signs and wonders, you, plural, y'all will not believe. And Jesus is saying, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I don't want to be a sideshow. You see, Jesus has been all over the front pages of the Palestinian news. I mean, he's, he's cast the people out of the temple. He's performed water, changed water in the wine. He's done other miracles. He's done other signs. And Jesus has become a sideshow. Step right up, step right up and see the man who can turn water in the wine, the man who can touch a blind man he can see, and the man who touches lepers and they're healed. Come and see Jesus of Nazareth. How many of you have seen The Greatest Showman? The, the movie that's out right now, Greatest Showman. How many? Look, raise your hands again. About a third. What do the rest of you people do out there? That is a great movie. I mean, I, I am not a musical kind of guy. If you haven't caught that over 36 and a half years, that's not my genre, but that's in my top 10 all-time movie list. So if you haven't seen it, you need to go see it. It's upbeat, it's positive, it's a great story. It's a story of P.T. Barnum. I guarantee if P.T. Barnum was around back then, he would have hired Jesus to be a sideshow. I guarantee you that. Come and see this man. Come and see what he can do. Come and see what happens. It's been the greatest attraction. And that's what's happening in the first century. People are coming to Jesus not because he's the Messiah, because he's the miracle worker. Not because he's the Savior, but they want to savor the things that he's doing. And so what we see here is a rebuke from Jesus to his people, saying, unless you see these things, you're not going to believe. Unless you see more signs and wonders, that's not going to happen. And so we move from the request of a dad to the rebuke of Jesus to a response of faith. The royal officials said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, I would be doing the same thing, wouldn't you? Over and over, your son, your daughter's dying. You would do anything to save their life. You knew this guy could do it. I mean, I would have said, Jesus, you come with me. And, uh, you know, he's got rank, wealth, and position. You come with me. I'll put you in the five-star Capernaum Inn for as long as you want. I'll feed you at the choicest tables. I, I, I will put money in your coffers. My son dying, come with me. So he's begging Jesus, look at what Jesus does. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. Excuse me, Jesus? I mean, he says, you can go home, your son's okay. That man had a decision to make. I submit to you, the first step in this man's life was a step with his heart, not with his feet. It wasn't a step to go home to see his son. It was a step of faith from his heart. And the first step we see here is a step of faith by this royal official. Pretty interesting. The text doesn't tell us if he's a Jew or Gentile. I assume based on the language of the text and being in Capernaum and where they are that he's Jewish. It's my assumption. I think when it talks about he and his household, I think it's, those are Jewish terms. But the text doesn't tell us that with certainty. 
But if he's from there, grew up there, we don't know if he grew up there, but perhaps he, he did. He's working there, obviously, as a king's official. Perhaps he's Jewish, maybe not. But what we do know is this man believed the words of Jesus. Here's our word. Look at verse 50. Go your way, your son lives. The man did what? What's it say? The man believed. Circle it in your Bible. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke, and he headed for home. I look at it and say, wow, what faith of this guy. I mean, that's amazing faith right there. He heads home, and he starts off, and, and, and as he was going down, his slaves met him saying, uh, your son's alive. And he inquired them when it happened, and they said, yesterday at the seventh hour. So he must have spent the night in Cana, must have been late, spent the night, now he's headed home, slaves come to see him, and uh, he says that it happened the seventh hour, and he realized this was the very moment that Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his entire household. Amazing story. Amazing story. You can see this man headed home. You can see the slaves coming and they're, and they're screaming, good news, good news, your son's alive, your son's alive. I mean, it's exciting. And, then, and he, he, tears flowing down his face for sure now. And he finally makes it to the edge of his little uh, villa over here. And all of a sudden he sees those little legs come churning out of the house. And he picks up his boy and he holds his little boy close. And he holds a savior in his heart. And I would love the rest of the story. I would love to know what happened the next time Jesus went to Capernaum. Capernaum was his headquarters. Jesus is in and out of Capernaum several times. Wouldn't you like to know what it was like when Jesus came in that royal affair? Hey, Jesus, thank you so much. This is my boy. Let's take a selfie right here. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine the excitement. Jesus, you spoke that word, my boy was well. The same moment you said it, my slave said, my servant said, at the same time. And you can imagine when he sees uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John and Matthew, maybe boyhood friends, I don't know for sure, but, but, but certainly folks he would know because it's a community of only 1,500 people and, and were to travel the, the, the back alleys of Capernaum. And that'd be great excitement. And he held not only his boy in his arms, but he held a savior in his heart, according to those verses. He and his household, circle it again, believed. It's a great story, isn't it? Well, we've got 20 minutes left. You know I'm not going to let you go after just telling the story. <laughs> so let's answer two questions. Question number one, what does this story teach? Question number two, why did John record it? What does this story teach us? What are some lessons? And number two... Why did John teach it? Let's pick up three lessons. First of all, in times of desperation, turn to Jesus. It should be obvious, right? It should be obvious. I mean, in times of desperation, turn to Jesus. But, but we miss the obvious so often, don't we? Maybe you remember the story. She's been at TBC for a while. I haven't used it in several years. It's a story of a uh, Russian man working in a wood mill during communism. And every Friday, he would leave work pushing a wheelbarrow. In the wheelbarrow was sawdust and, and uh, wood shavings. And a security guard would check out the sawdust and wood shavings week after week, knowing he was hiding something but could never find it and never figure it out. This went on for years and years and years. Over 30 years, every week, he would walk out with a wheelbarrow full of sawdust and wood shavings. And the security guard would check it and send him on his way because he couldn't find anything. 
Finally, the mill worker reached the age of retirement on his way out, the final Friday, he's pushing his wheelbarrow. The security guard looks through it, doesn't find anything, and he, he, he pulls him to the side and says, Comrade, I know for all these years, I've looked through the sawdust, I've looked through the wood shavings, you're taking something, you're stealing something, I just can't find it. If you tell me, I promise, I give you my word, I will tell no one, what are you stealing? And he whispered in the guy's ear, We'll bear us. We'll bear us. We'll bear us. <laughs> we miss the obvious over and over and over, don't we? In times of desperation, we'll bear us. Turn to Jesus. Turn to the Savior. Look to him. In 36 and a half years of TBC, I've seen folks turn to alcohol, to drugs, to bitterness, to anger, to exercising, to eating, to unforgiveness, to isolation, to, to, to quit worshiping because they've gone through frustrating, difficult times and they get isolated or to busyness so they don't have to think about it. But I've also seen people turn to Jesus. Maybe it's because they had health struggles like this young boy has gone through and the desperate dad or I'm gone through. Or maybe you've had financial struggles or a family turmoil and struggles or maybe you've had work struggles or relational struggles or whatever those battles are don't miss the obvious. Make Jesus the first call, not the last call. In times of desperation, turn to the Savior. Cling to the Savior. Press into the Savior. Honor the Savior. Remember the story of the little girl who turned to Jesus? Happened in Romania. There was a pastor whose uh, cat had a litter of kittens. The kittens were growing up. One day his wife came and said, one of the kittens is stuck up in a tree. We need to get it down. So he went there. And he couldn't reach the kitten. So he tied a rope around his bumper, tied a rope around the limb. And uh, his wife was standing there. She's, he's going to bend the limb down. The wife is going to grab the kitten and take it off. Well, as the limb is coming down, the wife went up to grab the kitten. But the rope snapped and sent that kitten up into outer space. <laughs> the next day, the neighbor behind them who also attended their church, came running over at first thing in the morning and said, Pastor, Pastor, you're not going to believe what happened yesterday. My little girl came to me yesterday morning begging for a kitten. <laughs> you know where this has gone, right? I told her the only way you can have a kitten is if Jesus gives you a kitten. So she ran outside, got on her knees, and I heard her pray out loud, Jesus, please give me a kitty of my very own to love and care for. And then I looked, and right out of heaven, this kitten came fell right in front of my God. Hey, you know what? That little girl turned to Jesus. I'm sure it's not a true story. It would have been a dog if it was a true story. Nobody prays for cats. I mean, in times of desperation, turn to your Savior. Turn to the one who loves you. This dad ran to Jesus. And Jesus rebuked him for wanting signs and the people, but times of desperation you run to the Savior. Secondly, trust Jesus as a Savior, not just a miracle worker. Trust him as your Savior, not just a miracle worker. You see, the rebuke, I think, that comes in that verse is because they didn't want a Messiah. They wanted a miracle. They didn't want the, the giver of the gifts. They wanted the gift. And it's really easy for us, if we look in the mirror, to think that the only times we call out unto God is when we're in times of crisis or despair. And, and, and somehow God and Jesus is Aladdin's lamp that we rub it and the genie pops out and the genie meets our requests. We put him back in the bottle and we stick him on the shelf. 
I mean, look at it this way. If your sons and daughters only called you when they needed something, only talked to you when they needed something, or only got in touch with you when they needed something, how many of you, I mean, if you got kids away at college, now college kids, you've got to learn from this, okay? You just don't call your mom and dad when you need something, okay? They want to talk to you. They want to have a relationship. They should. They want to have a relationship with you. And if all my sons and daughter did, my son and daughter was calling, hey, hey, Papa Doe, hey, Dad, we need something. If all my grandkids did without a relationship, you'd think eventually they really don't want a relationship. They want my stuff. And that's what's happening here. Hey, we want a miracle worker. We want a miracle, not the Messiah. We want the gifts, but not the giver of the gifts. And so Jesus rebukes them. I, I encourage you to trust Jesus as your Savior, not just as a miracle worker. He's not in, Aladdin, in Aladdin's lamp seeking to come forth. He came as our Savior. And that's the rebuke. The rebuke is, I came as a Savior for your sins. And all you want to see is the miraculous. Thirdly, when Jesus speaks, believe his word and respond in obedience. When Jesus speaks, believe his word and respond in obedience. I don't know about you, but I'm impressed with this man's faith, aren't you? I mean, amen? I mean, I look at this guy's faith and say, God, I hope I'd have the faith to believe your word and head back home believing that my son was healed and, and leave you back there. I mean, you look at this royal official and I am thoroughly impressed with his faith and his obedience to the word of Christ. So my point is, when Jesus speaks, believe his word and respond in obedience. Now, I started question, asking myself as I studying this this week, what are some things that Jesus asked us to do? Now, this is empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? This isn't just knuckling it up and doing it ourselves. What does he ask? He's asked us to serve sacrificially. He's asked us to love unconditionally. He's asked us to forgive completely. He's asked us to pray continually, to make disciples, to give generously to not judge others, to, to, to not hate, to abstain from sexual morality, to worship together corporately. He says, don't neglect the assembling together. He, he admonishes us to speak boldly the good news. To speak the good news boldly. How many of you saw Megan Kelly's interview of Kathy Lee Gifford after Billy Graham died? You talk about a woman who spoke boldly about Jesus. She spoke boldly about Jesus. Jim, go ahead and cue that up. This is a woman who, bold, I can't believe, first of all, this is on national TV, and watch how boldly she speaks of the Savior. Kathy Lee Gifford joins me now. She was a close friend of Billy Graham. Kathy, great to see Still you. am. <laughs> what, what's your reaction? What are you thinking about Oh, my, they, they came in to tell me I was in makeup over across the street, and I just immediately just put up my hands and said, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Because he has been... Uh, lingering and languishing. Uh, I, last time I saw him was four years ago at his 95th birthday party. And uh, Frank was alive then too, and we went down there. And, and I was sitting with his granddaughter at a, at, a, um, at a table and hadn't seen him, and he was quite frail. But I, I knew it, in my heart it would be the last time I'd see him. So I said to her, I said, can I go over and just, just tell your, your grandfather thank you? Because my whole family came to faith in Jesus through the Billy Graham organization. Is that right? Yes. And I personally did going to the first movie that the Billy Graham organization ever put out. It was called The Restless Ones. And it's like God met me in my heart right where I lived. I wanted to be an actress. So where does God meet me? In a movie theater. And at that time, he took a lot of flack for even 
making a movie. See, I, but, but I, I find it so interesting because you you have the same philosophy as he did, which he used to say, he used to preach about the joy, the joy Absolutely. of belief. Absolutely. That sounds like you. And what just happened for Billy happened for my husband, happened for my mother, for my father. Everybody that dies in Christ goes immediately into the arms of Christ for eternity. That is the hope of the Christian faith. Yes, it gives us the tools we need to live in the world today while we're alive. But that's why I could hold my dead husband in my arms and rejoice because I knew where he was and it gives you the peace that passes all understanding and if we don't have if we've ever needed peace in this world we need it now right and somebody says to me why are you so bold about your faith and I just look at everybody's beautiful face right now you too (laughs) I said why are you so bold about your faith and I said you know what if you had the cure for cancer would you keep it quiet or would you hold it and keep it a secret And I always say, I have the cure for the malignancy of the soul. And he has a name. And it's Jesus. That's a bold woman right there. All three hours, same response. Spontaneous applause as soon as they heard that. Jesus called us to serve sacrificially, give generously, to forgive, and to speak boldly of him. And I pray that you'll take it from something like that and recognize there are opportunities for us to do that wherever we are. Now let's talk about the elephant in the room and then we'll stop. Here's the elephant in the room. A desperate dad goes to Jesus for his son to be healed and he's healed. So Pastor Gary, how come you're not healed? That's the elephant in the room right now, isn't it? I mean, as we're talking about this as a staff, it's like you've got to talk about this, Gary. I mean... We've got to talk about this. The elders have prayed over you. They've anointed. I've seen uh, taped on our door. Somebody's taped. I don't know who it is, but taped things on our doors from James chapter 5. I don't know if that's an admonition for us to do that. I want you to know we do that. We pray over people. We anoint. Go to, go to James chapter 5 for a second with me. We, we do these things. I, I'm not sure why they're there. Somebody put them there. But I want you to know we obey the scriptures. We do these things. So the question you might have is, Pastor Gary, why haven't you been healed? The elders have prayed over you. TBC has prayed over you numerous times. At 11.04, my, my birthday is November 4th. My niece said, hey, why don't we set our alerts on our phone at 11.04 and uh, pray for Papa Doe? And so... I was in a meeting this week. I heard 15 phones go off at 1104. Uh, This morning, if you weren't in here, there were phones that went off at 1104, people praying for us. I appreciate that so much. I've got thousands of people on Facebook I've never met praying for me. We have missionaries around the world praying for us. We have sister churches in Ukraine and Rwanda praying for us. So, Pastor Gary, why aren't you healed? Is your lack of faith? Why aren't you healed? I mean, we're not going to talk about this every week, but we've got to talk about it in this passage, right? So why aren't you healed? The first thing I want to say is I believe our God is a God of miracles. Uh, he, he spoke the world into being as no problem to cleanse a liver. I mean, if he wants to whack a met tomorrow, he can do that. I have no question about that. He is the most The resurrection is true. That was the greatest miracle ever. And because of that, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. I believe that at the core of who I am. Second thing I want to say is not only do I believe God is a God of miracles, the second thing that, that we have prayed for, Bev and I have prayed for often, is that if this results in death, and that could happen soon, that, that folks will not be, they will not turn away to the Savior, but they'll draw near to the Savior. I've had several folks say, why you? Because we live in a fallen world. Statistics on death are impressive. One out of one of us are going to die, every one of us. And uh, 
I may be the welcoming committee waiting for you in heaven. I don't know. But, but here's what I do know. I pray you will not be like Job's wife. Remember what she said? After death took place, curse God and die. But I want you to be like Job, who says, what right with all the blessing we have to do that? God has been good to us. He is good to us. And he's going to continue to be good to us. And I pray you're drawn closer to the Savior, not drawn away from the Savior because of death. In James chapter 5, James is writing... And he says in verse 13, anyone among you suffering, pray. Anyone you cheerful, sing praises. Anyone sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, it will be forgiven. The word sick there literally is to be weak. And so he's saying, hey, if you're weak, you get prayed over by the elders. It's a good thing to do. And we'll do that. If you want to be prayed over, all you got to do is email any of us. We will meet. We'll anoint with all. We'll pray. We believe God is a God of healing. We believe that. And, and, and here, the word sick refers to that which is weak. It can be physical weakness, emotional weakness, or spiritual weakness. You're going through a spiritual battle, we'll pray for you. You're emotionally struggling, we'll pray for you. You're physically struggling, we'll pray for you. James' point is, if you're suffering, if you're blessed, or if you're sick, you pray. That's his whole point. But don't miss what it says in verse 15. The Lord will raise him up. This is God's business. This is God's business. There's a great Norwegian theologian from yesteryear who said it this way, and this has been one of my prayers as well. Lord, if it be to your glory, he'll suddenly. If it glorify you even more, he'll gradually. If it glorify you even more, may your servant remain sick a while. And if it glorify your name still more, take him to heaven. Isn't that the way we should all pray? Rather than coming before God and demanding, there are those who would say, well, Pastor Gary, it says in Isaiah, by his stripes we're healed. You just need to claim healing. But you look at Isaiah in its context, we will be healed. We have been healed. It's spiritual healing there. What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Jesus died not for our coals, he died for our souls. Now I'm not making light of our coals and the flu and everything else, so don't send me those emails. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> but would you rather be cured of a cold and go to hell? Or would you rather get cancer and die and be in his presence forever? That's really the question, isn't it? So the elephant in the room is, our God is a God who heals. He can always heal. But the answer to the question is, whatever brings him the greatest glory is what we should desire. And so God, man, I'd love to be healed. I'd love to go get an MRI next week and I have a clear liver. I don't know if that's going to happen. It could. I believe to the core of who I am it could. I also think I could be sick for a while. I also think I'd go to glory in a few months. All I know is I'm going to trust my Savior. It also says here, confess your sins to one another. So there's a correlation between sometimes sickness and sin. And when I was first diagnosed with this five years ago, I got with one of my dear brothers, got on my knees, investigated my heart, found some areas of my heart that needed to be cleansed. So we took care of that five years ago. Does that mean I haven't sinned in the last five years? Talk to Bev, she'll tell you the truth about that, okay? <laughs> I have sinned many times in the last five years. But here's what I know. I want to keep short accounts. And I want to press them to my Savior. And I want to back up to Him when I go to glory. I want to sprint across that finish line. Just like that man did with his son and pick him up. And I said, look at this. Except I'll be in my face saying, wow, can't believe we're here.
can't believe we're here. Well, why John write this? I mean, why John write this? Why, why record this miracle? Maybe for TBC in 2018. Could be. Uh, John, John says this. He says, uh, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of disciples that are not recorded in this book. So John recorded certain ones. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. So Nicodemus is a religious, moral lawkeeper. The Samaritan woman is an irreligious, immoral, non-lawkeeper. The, the, the royal official is a wealthy, uh, worldly man. And I believe what John is saying, hey, let me show you three things that have happened. Let me show you as I weave together this account so you can see that Jesus is the Messiah, not for some people, but for all people. For all people. And then he says, he says at the last verse there, this sign he did. And the signs are recorded to show us that Jesus is the Christos, the Son of God. And we say, thank you, Lord. And thank you, John and Holy Spirit, for revealing that to him to teach us who Jesus really is. So, Jesus is the Christ. Place your faith in him. Here's how we're going to close. We're going to close a little differently. Billy Graham is going to give us an invitation. I thought it would be good to honor that man. He is a man who has honored God with his life. And uh, so, worship team, would you come and join me? And here's what I'm going to do. We're going to watch a little clip from Billy Graham. And uh, if you're struggling this morning, now's a great time for you to meet Jesus. Some of you are here. You've been dragged here by somebody. You're not sure if you breathe your last breath where you would be eternally. I want you to come down here, go to your knees and make sure that you come and ask Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Some of you are struggling emotionally, some of you physically. Some of you are struggling in a marriage, some of you are struggling with wayward kids, some of you are struggling financially. I want you to come get your knees down here. I want you to lay it at the altar. Some of you, when we talk about believing the word of God and walking in obedience, he talks about forgiving freely. You've got something you haven't forgiven and won't give up. This morning's the morning to give it up. Give generously. You're not generous, you need to come give it up. Serve sacrificially. You have been serving. You deal with the living God today. Bev and I will be down here, we'll be on our knees. You come and join us. We're going to stand and, well, we're going to watch Billy Graham first. He's going to issue the invitation. I forgot about Billy. So let's do Billy Graham first. There's something wrong down inside. There's an empty place. You have everything except something you're not quite sure what it is. There's a hole in your heart and in your life. You'd like it to be filled, but you don't know what it is. So you're searching. No one else maybe knows that you're searching, but you are. You're searching for something that can satisfy that deepest longing that you have. And you've tried so many things. You've tried drugs, maybe. You've tried sex. All these things, and it hasn't satisfied that deepest longing that you have. And you're searching for something, and you're not sure what that something is. That something is God. Because God made you in his image. And he loves you. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross. And he took every sin that you've ever committed on that cross. 
He became sin for us. Jesus became guilty of your sins. He became guilty of the sin of lying, of immorality, sexual immorality, all these things. He became guilty on that cross because the Bible says he was made to be sin for you because he loved you. That's how much God loves you. And if you were the only person in the whole world, he would have died for you. You've got some kind of struggle this morning? Why don't you join me down here? Give it up. You need to meet Christ for the first time? Come meet him. Let's stand together. At every Billy Graham crusade, they finish with the same song. We're going to sing that song. You make your way down here and you pray. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to struggles being dropped at this altar right now. Dozens of them. Thank you for meeting us just as we are. We love you, we adore you, we honor you, and we worship you today and forever. In Christ's name, amen.